Thanks for tuning in to our Cypress Church podcast. To learn more about our church, visit our website at cypresschurch.net and join us for our Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. Subscribe on iTunes for more. All right, if you would grab a seat, that would be awesome. Preferably your seat. Well, I guess this week I introduced myself. So my name is Lance Leffler, and uh, we are looking at the book of Romans in the New Testament. Be honest, how many of you thought that you were coming to first service this morning? <laughs> Found out that the time changed. Yeah. <laughs> I've had an iPhone for 10 years, and it automatically switches, and I still don't trust it. And it's a preacher's nightmare. You know, why couldn't it be like Sunday night that it changes? Because we don't work the rest of the week, just Sundays. That's our work day, and so it wouldn't affect us. But no. So um, <clears throat> let me do this. Let me put up something on the, on the screen here. In the book of Romans, Paul the Apostle says this, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, this is your reasonable service. Now I'm stealing, some of you are looking at your Bibles. This is a totally different version, I'm sure. This is the New King James. I use this because of it, the way it translates one of the key words here. Uh, if you've been a follower of Christ for a while, you probably know this verse. It probably rolls off your tongue. You look at it, you're like, yeah, present your body's living sacrifice. Yeah, Romans 12.1. Memorized it in Bible camp. But if you're new to church, maybe you're in here for the first time and you see a verse that says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, you're like, this is the last time I'm coming to this place. Christians are weird because sacrifices are not cool. A few years ago, I led a mission trip to uh, northern Mexico to the mountains outside of Chihuahua City. I have a friend who's a doctor there, and they were building a medical clinic in, uh, in a village for the Tarahumara Indians. Now, the Tarahumara Indians are famous worldwide for their marathons, for their long-distance races, uh, which can be you know, 50, 75, 80 miles at a time, not 26.2. Like They don't have that little bumper sticker that says 26.2. They have one that says 80. And so for so part of our cultural enrichment, they put on one of their races, and they, they run through the mountains in, in like, flip-flops and kick this, like, wicker sort of uh, ball back and forth to each other. They did a short run when we were there as maybe 20 miles, you know. They won't, they won't get up for anything less than that. But one of the things they want, wanted to do was host us for a meal, and it was a, a native uh, soup that they were going to make uh, with goat's meat in it. And we thought that was going to be really cool, but they don't go to the store and buy goat's meat. They take their goat and they slaughter it. And here's my problem. I think I'm the problem. Because at some point, somewhere along the lines, I was trying to remember somehow the idea of watching the goat be slaughtered as sort of a visual image for us to understand what animal sacrifices were like in the Old Testament. Somehow that became an option, and I, of course, said, yeah, let's see that. And so come the day that they're going to slaughter the goat and make the soup for us, they, they bring the goat out. And, of course, you know, goats are, by and large, are ugly, but this one was cute. It had to be. And our team gathers around, and 
they take, very expertly, they take this knife and they slit the goat's throat and it bleeds out in front of us and in a few seconds it's dead. And the mood went from excited and curious to very depressed, very somber, like, because none of us had ever seen an animal killed. We had never seen a sacrifice. But think about the Old Testament times. The Jewish people lived by these sacrifices that covered their sins temporarily until God sent his sacrifice for us. So anybody who's sensitive to this idea of a living sacrifice or maybe you saw animals slaughtered. Maybe you, there's still some people who grew up on, on farms. But for most of us, we don't, um, we don't kill our own food. And if we did, there'd be a lot more vegetarians probably. You know, the thought that, oh, well, you know, I can't kill Chuck the chicken. You know, we named him and he's been a pet, you know. Or uh, we have friends who raise uh, pigs. They were in, we lived in Mexico City for a while, pastoring an international church there, English-speaking church there in Mexico City, and we had some friends uh, that we met there who were from New Jersey, and, and they moved back to New Jersey, and they uh, raised pigs, and the first two that they got, they told their kids, don't name the pigs. Anybody raised on a farm, you know this, right? Don't name the animal that you're going to eat, but the kids automatically named them, salchicha and tocino, sausage and bacon. So at least they were in the spirit of it, right? Why would Paul say this? Why would Paul say, present your bodies a living sacrifice? Um, and notice what else he says about this at the end of the verse. He says, this is your reasonable service. Not, now, Paul should have introduced it by saying something like this. Okay, guys, I'm going to tell you something really crazy. I got this crazy idea. I want you to present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. What do you say? No, he says, this is your reasonable service. He doesn't say this is crazy. He says, this is what you should do. In fact, let me just, let me just break down that word reasonable. The word reasonable is in some versions, it says spiritual. Um, but the original Greek word equally or better means spiritual, or it means reasonable or appropriate. And so some versions will say, this is the best way to worship, or this is your appropriate worship. Paul's saying this is appropriate. This is a Christian thing to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So where's he coming from with this? I wanted to link both parts of Romans this morning in our, in our minds. And here's why. Because in the first 11 chapters of Romans, there's almost no commands. It's a bunch of great theology. It's a mind filled with spiritual riches, but almost no commands until you get to chapter 12. And then it's the, what's called the practical section of the book. And it's do this, do that, like you would, would expect. But to go for 11 chapters with just theology, theology, spiritual truths is a long haul, especially if you're teaching through the book over a series of a year, which I think they are here. So I wanted to link these two sections of the book in our minds so we see how this works, because the second section, the practical, comes out of the first section, the, the theological or the spiritual truth section, even though I think it's practical also. But this all hinges on the first part of 12.1. 
where Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, etc. So he starts out by saying, I appeal to you, brethren, sisters, therefore. And whenever you see the therefore in the Bible, you should ask, what's it there for? What's it there for? Because it links what he's saying to what came before. So what is Paul linking to? I think he's linking chapter 12, verse 1, present your body's living sacrifice, to everything that went before. I think Paul is, what he did is he, he did this whole 11 chapters full of this is, this is where we were. We were hopelessly lost. And God came along and he sent his son to die as a sacrifice for us to take our place. And so that all of these riches flow out of the cross for us. And then he goes, therefore, what is our reasonable response to that? Give him everything you got. All right, well, let's rewind a bit. Let's go back to where we were last week. If you weren't here last week, it's a quick summary. Don't worry. It's one verse, and here's what it is. No one will become right with God by good works. That's a whole summary of last week. So you didn't miss much. People are like, ah, see, pastor said you can miss church. It's not a big deal. No one will be made right with God by good works. Now, if you were paying half attention, you realize that's really bad news. Because what else do I have to offer to God but my good works? What I have to offer to anybody but to love them, to serve them, to, to do good things for people? And isn't it the same with God? And if, and if that doesn't ingratiate me to him, if I can't become his child through that, what else do I have? And Paul wanted to make clear that there is something else, but you don't have it. He does. And so that verse, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 20, I said is the most depressing verse in all of Romans because Paul has painted us into a corner that we can't get out of. You are helpless in sin. And you can't turn things around on your own now and please God because of where you came from. And because even if you did try to offer your, your good works, they're not perfect. And everybody will admit that. I said last week, a lot of people would be like, man, I don't know if we're as bad as Paul seems to say here, but at least we know we're not perfect and that's all it takes because we can't offer perfect works to God. That's why that verse is so depressing. But the next verse begins with one very important three-letter word, but. Chapter 3, verse 21 says, but now. And the, the feel of it, the mood that comes across in that, if you followed, if you read chapter 1 straight through to 320, you're like, dang. But as soon as you read the but now in verse 21, you're like, it's like an old Batman scene, you know, where Robin, you remember the one Robin is like on this conveyor belt going towards this buzzsaw and Batman has to step in at the last moment. But now Batman, don't worry. But this is better than that. But now God, because even Batman can't save you. And some of you are going to go home today and that's all you're going to remember is Batman can't save you. That's what we learned in church today. And I'm fine with that, because you need to know that. But now, what? 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Let me, let me break down that term righteousness of God. If you've been around the Bible for a while, you've seen that before, right, the righteousness of God, you would probably take it to mean the, an attribute of God, the fact that he is righteous. But interestingly, what you come to find out is that the majority of times when the righteousness of God is spoken of in the Bible, it's a different definition than that. That is a legitimate definition. But the, but the most occurrences are this, the saving action of God. That's why the psalmist prays, Lord, save me by your righteousness. And so the righteousness of God in this case is the righteous action to save or the saving action of God. So he's saying the saving action of God is manifested or revealed. How? How is it revealed? Well, it's revealed in the cross of Christ. And the irony is that Jesus' suffering on the cross, which seemed so passive, was God entering time and space to rescue humanity through that suffering by his righteous action to save. The righteousness of God has been manifested in Christ. Then he goes on to say, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He revisits that notion that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God to remind us we couldn't, we can't do anything on our own to butter God up to change God's mind about us, to make ourselves acceptable to him by our own moral efforts. He says there's no distinction, and he means by that for Jews or for Gentiles. The Jewish people were God's initial chosen people. And he says it's no different. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, we come through the same way, and that's faith. Let's break this down. Notice how he says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for all who believe. And again, he reiterates, I want, I want us to see that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a key to notice because faith becomes our link to God. So let's break this down. What does faith mean? Faith is a, that's a kind of a big term in, in church. That's kind of thrown around a lot, right? We refer to Christianity as the faith. We Christians are all about believing. And if you don't know anything about Christianity, you know the most famous verse in the Bible if you ever watched a football game, right? The guy who used to hold up the sign, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes will have eternal life. I'm going to emphasize this, and here's why. Last week I made this comment that I had talked to lots and lots of church-going people over the years, and I say... If you died today and you went up to heaven and Jesus said, why should I let you in my heaven? What would you say? And this is already after they've, they've answered the question, how, how do you get to become a child of God? And they say, I believe. 
But when you ask the question this way, Jesus saying, why should I let you into heaven? Almost every person responded like this, because I believe and. And what? And I'm a good person. Or and I, I try to follow you. But there's no and in it. The gospel, the good news is what God did for us. And so that faith becomes the hand that reaches out to God. And what made a, makes us acceptable to him, what can make you a part of God's family is not an effort on your own part, but, but merely trusting him. So let's break this down. What does it mean to believe? I think there's two aspects or two types of faith. The first one would be intellectual agreement, intellectual assent. You basically believe the facts of the case. Yes, I believe Jesus existed. I believe he died on the cross, um, all that. But there's no step. There's no risk. It's just standing back and, and surveying the situation and say, yes, I, I, I believe this is true. I'll give you an example. Um, if you asked me, do I think that my L.A. Chargers can make it to the Super Bowl next year? Who did that? Who left? Rams fan? How'd that go for you? No? Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, they interrupted the whole class. So, I would say yes. I would say yes. We got a young team, great squad. Uh, we've got a, you know, Hall of Fame quarterback. What's stopping us? Well, this year, you know, we had a little problem with the New England Patriots, but they cheat. So you can't battle evil with good. It, it, that works in the movies, but, you know, the cheaters prosper in real life. Um, kids, don't listen to what I just said. So, but if you said, Lance, are you willing to bet a thousand bucks on the Chargers to make it to the Super Bowl. Notice I don't even say win the Super Bowl. I just make it to the Super Bowl. I would say, heck no. And that's the second aspect of faith, trust. Trust involves risk. Trust involves placing yourself in somebody else's hands. I'll give you another example to drive this point home. When our oldest daughter was about a year old, we traveled to Toronto, Canada. I'm originally Canadian, but moved here when, when uh, I was in eighth grade with my family. I didn't want to come alone. Um, so we were visiting. My siblings all live up there, and so we were visiting one year. And we went to uh, the CN Tower. How many know the CN Tower? Yeah, about five people. This is the, crazy, this is the world's best-kept secret. The CN Tower, up until 10 years ago, was the world's tallest building until the Burj Dubai or Burj Khalifa was built. And so the CN Tower, you can see, has a kind of a spire thing and like a donut deal around the top. Well, that where it overhangs, they have this glass floor that you can stand on and look down 110 feet. There's a picture I took. Just kidding. Um... Uh, now, if you asked me, Lance, do you think that glass floor could hold you? I would say absolutely. 
I have to agree. I'm seeing people standing on it. I know it's been engineered to the nth degree, even though it was built by the government. Um, so I, I would have to believe that it could hold me. Now, if you ask me, would you step out onto it? Heck no. And I was surprised how many people came up to me after first service. and They're like, I'm with you, man. I would not step on that. Look at this. Um, you can't necessarily see from where you're sitting, but you follow the tower down to the bottom, the concrete slab. That's an X on the concrete. That's where you land when the glass breaks. They, they put it there because they don't want you to mess up the grass. Canadians are particular about their lawns. And so they put the X. That's where you land when you fall 110 feet to your death. So no, I'm not going to walk on it. Well, this created a little bit of tension between my, my wife and I because my daughter is sitting out on it, and my wife wanted me to go retrieve her. I'm like, no, I love my kids, but I don't have that kind of faith. Go with me on this. I'm struggling right now. That's what I mean. That's what I mean by faith. Martin Luther said, biblical faith means you bet your life on it. You bet your life on Jesus. And what you get for that is to be justified. We touched on this word last week, but I want to break it down a bit more this week. Paul goes on to say that we are justified by, uh, excuse me, justified by his grace as a gift. Justified by his grace as a gift. The moment you place your faith in him. And by the way, this, this faith thing is not, I remember when I was considering Christianity, I was a 19-year-old kid, and and I couldn't figure out how you get in, how you become one of them. Uh, it, it's real basic. There's no class. There's no priest you meet with. It's in the quietness of your own heart right now. If you say, I don't think I have that, you can place your faith in Jesus. And it's not going to be perfect. And you're not going to know what you're doing. And that's fine. But if you just say, Lord, I want you to come into my life. I have no idea what, why I'm doing this or what I'm doing. But it's that simple. Because there are no works we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. We simply receive the work that Christ did for us. And we are justified by his grace. And I mentioned last week that justified means to be declared righteous. Declared righteous. That's a big idea in the Bible. This word justification is maybe the most important technical term in the Bible. And to be justified is to be declared righteous or acquitted of the charges of heaven against you. And as we saw last week, if you were here, the charges are great. Because we've turned aside and gone our own way when we were created to worship and serve and glorify our creator. And we didn't. Instead, we chose to worship and serve ourselves And so God sends his son to take the punishment that we deserve so that we could become his child. I'm going to teach you guys a big word. This will be your big word for the week. You can share it at school, dazzle your friends in the neighborhood. It's propitiation. Paul goes on to say, you don't have to look there, but Paul goes on to say in the next couple of verses that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation for our sins. 
What is propitiation? That's a big word. Well, so is delicatessen, but we can handle it. So propitiation is an atoning sacrifice, atoning sacrifice. Nothing less than the death of the Son of God on the cross could reconcile us to God. And that cuts against our grain, some of us, because some of us are good people. We're well off. We're generous. We mow our lawn. We work on our abs. We don't hurt anybody. We pay our taxes. Why wouldn't God like me? And so this cuts against the grain that that our sins were such that God had to send his own perfect son as a substitute for us. And that's what's happening on the cross. When Jesus hangs there and he suffers, he actually takes the wrath of God, the divine judgment of God that we deserved. He takes it upon himself, which is why Jesus screams from the cross at one point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that should be us. And in that same sacrifice, he's taking away our sins. Taking away our sins. So, what do we do with this? That's great. Love hearing that, Lance. I did that a long time ago. Placed my faith in Jesus. I've been a Christian a long time. Got the Bible memorized. What do we do with this? Well, this is why I wanted to link Romans 3, the spiritual truths, mine, of treasures, with the practical section of Romans. Let's go back to our verse that we started with, Romans 12.1. Let's remind ourselves what Paul said. He said, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And he said this was reasonable. This was reasonable. And that's what I want to focus on. Some of your versions will say spiritual. Some will say appropriate. Some will say it's the best way to worship. I like the, the original Greek word. It has that aspect of this is ragic, rational. In fact, it's the word we, it's the cognate for people who love words of logic. It's logikos. It's where we get the word logic. It's, this is logical to present yourself as a living sacrifice. How can Paul say that? He can say it because of everything Jesus did for us. That's how he can say it. He doesn't just shoot it out there in midair. He grounds it in the work of God on the cross, in, his, in, in the suffering of Christ, in our place, so that this person who came and this God who, who in, initiated the plan of rescue is worth giving everything to. That's his point. I mentioned in the first service the, the novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, and I quoted the the book, the novel, written in the 1800s. I didn't mean to imply it actually read it. Uh, I saw the movie, and so let's just be clear, this service. In the movie, Jean Valjean is arrested. He spends, he gets a, a five-year sentence for stealing bread to feed his starving family. And he gets another 14 years tacked on for his multiple uh, escape attempts. And by the time he's out, he's a hardened criminal. He's a hard man. He gets taken in by the kindness of a bishop. He spends the night, has dinner. In the middle of the night, he gets up. He's rifling through the silverware. 
He's going to steal everything he can and take off. And the bishop wakes up and he comes down and finds him. And he says, Jean Valjean, why are you doing this? And without a word, Jean Valjean knocks him out and takes off. The next day, the police bring Jean Valjean back to the bishop's courtyard. And they present him to the, the good bishop. And they said, uh, we found this man with all of this silverware, and he claims that you gave it to him. And the bishop says, that's right. I did. And the, the officers are taken aback. They're like, you did? You gave him all your silverware? And he says, yeah, that's right. Jean Valjean I have a problem with you. Why didn't you take the candlesticks too? And he sends a, someone to go get the candlesticks that were silver and worth thousands. So Jean Valjean, that was very foolish of you as he's stuffing the candlesticks into the bag of stuff that Jean Valjean stole from him. And the police are just aghast. They leave. They leave Jean Valjean in the custody of the bishop. And the bishop looks at him and he says, and this is the point where Jean Valjean says, why are you doing this? And he said, Jean Valjean, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and wickedness and hatred. And now I give you back to God. And if you know the story, Jean Valjean goes on to become a new man because of that. Because of the sacrifice of this bishop for him. I can't think of a more poignant image, picture of the grace of God that comes to us through the cross of Christ. So because of that, God has purchased your soul. This is not a club. We've been purchased from fear and hatred to become a new person. And there's no better news on earth than that. And there's no better justification for Paul to say, therefore, give him everything. Give him everything. He's worth it and a million times more. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that each person in here, no matter where we're at in our spiritual journey, our understanding of you, that we would consider these truths, that we take a minute to ponder the amazingness of the gospel and of what we, the ground that we just tread on in your Bible. I pray for anyone here today who hasn't taken that step of faith or who's been away for a while from you, that this would be the moment that you reconnect with them, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.